This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, a lecture about the 1918 influenza pandemic and public information efforts in the United States to stop the spread of the disease. The class is taught by Stony Brook University professor Nancy Toms. So what are we going to do today? Um, I promised you all that um, I would do a little show and tell from my own research work. Um, And the timing of this turned out that uh, doing something, a historical perspective on pandemic preparedness might seem like a really uh, interesting topic for us to um, discuss. And I think I've mentioned to you all that I have been getting a lot of calls from journalists lately, and it's kind of like, why why in the middle of a, uh, an ongoing pandemic are they calling up people like me? So I think this is a, a good thing for us to talk about. This is a history methods course. It's about how you uh, become – whoops, went too fast there – how you become um, a historian and what you what you do – for, uh, for a living. You may remember the first week of class, we talked a little bit about the reaction sometimes you may get from family members when they hear you're a history major or a minor or even taking a history course that why is this useful uh, knowledge? Uh, why are you bothering with all this old stuff? I can tell you personally, I get those questions a lot because of my research specialty in the history of health and medicine. Science is so much better today. Why should we bother looking at the past history of diseases and how we responded to them? So my goal today is to give you an example of why bother and why I'm proud to be a historian. Come on in, uh, Justin. Um, why I'm, I'm really psyched about what I do. So that is objective number one. I said the first week of class, I, w- I want to make you proud of being a history major. Um, so here's my way of saying why I'm proud to do what I do. The, the second goal today is to talk specifically about uh, pandemics in terms of what we've been talking about in this class. Um, how were forms of public outreach used um, to try to contain and mitigate um, a, a major epidemic? My work has been on public education, or we you might call it propaganda. It's, it's, do we need to... Uh, Justin, can you just move over a little bit? There you go. Um, We've talked, uh, I think, the week before last about the word propaganda. It has a lot of negative associations to it. Uh, For much of the 20th century, uh, it did not have those negative associations. Propaganda is often public information. It's trying to get messages out um, to people that could help them in uh, in a time of emergency. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. What were the methods of outreach that were available um, in probably the most significant global pandemic of the 20th century. Now, I know a lot of you saw 1917, um, the movie about World War I, and you know that was a pretty brutal war with the trench warfare. A lot of people died. That uh, film is an amazing recreation of uh, the conditions in wartime. 
you'll remember from our readings, World War I is the um, first world war. That's why we call it World War I, in that its combatants spanned multiple continents. And as we've seen in our readings, it inspired new kinds of propaganda. Remember our, our uh, draft posters the, um, that we looked at from both the British and the U.S. side, Uncle Sam, for example. Um, what you're less likely to know is as that war ground to, uh, to its horrible close that a terrible influenza pandemic broke out. It's still not clear where it came from, but it spread very quickly, first to troops and then to civilians. And it ultimately killed more people than did World War I. And just to give you uh, a, a sense of comparison, that is, uh, we, we uh, were able to isolate the, that is the H1N1 novel form from the Spanish flu pandemic. Uh, World War I combat deaths, 8.5 million. That's, that's bad. Uh, but look at the influenza death toll. 50 million is now the estimate it could be even higher than that. Uh, so more lives lost in that influenza pandemic than were lost in World War I. And just as point of comparison, in our lifetime, HIV-AIDS has been you know, a tremendous uh, killer. Uh, 32 million during the entire course of the, um, the uh, AIDS epidemic, um, influenza, uh, in public health circles, they refer to it as the big one still um, because the death tolls were so high. Um, now, you, uh, uh, you may think, well, that was a really sad story and lots of people died, but what is the point of studying an old pandemic. After all, science is so much better today, right? We can just find a cure and cure it, right? How are we doing with curing the coronavirus? No, we're not doing so well, um, in part because this is Mother Nature issuing a major challenge to us. Uh, as a new uh, a virus form that people don't have uh, immunity to. Um, in fact, the coronavirus and the response to it in many ways is um, revisiting a lot of the same issues that came up with the uh, World War I pandemic. Um, and the reasons that we are having trouble with coronavirus today are very similar to the problems they encountered with this new influenza uh, in 1918-1919. But here's an even stranger fact. And that is the methods we use today to control coronavirus are drawn from the same public health playbook that they used in 1918-1990. The basics are still the same. Um, we have not evolved hugely beyond what was available um, in the World War I era. And it's precisely because the methods are still the same, that there has been a growing interest in the history of this 1918-1919 pandemic. Now, it was not always the case that people paid much attention to this pandemic, and I just show you this book. It was called America's Forgotten Pandemic, written in 1987. Um, very little serious historical work on, on the 1918-1919 uh, pandemic. He talked about amnesia, that no one thought about it anymore. 
I'm here to tell you that, especially in the last 20 years, it is forgotten no more. There has been an upsurge of research and interest in this pandemic um, out of uh, an impulse to try to learn how to manage current epidemics more effectively. In other words, our public health folks are now preparing for a new pandemic by looking back. It's called a look back. It is a methodology used in, in uh, public health to look back at previous epidemics and see what worked and what didn't work. Uh, public health emergency preparedness has become a major subfield in public health. Um, it's really grown a lot since 9-11. You may remember there was some bioterrorism involved in 9-11, but it also reflects a kind of gradual recognition um, that for a variety both of um, economic uh, factors and also environmental factors, we are getting more and more novel diseases emerging. And, uh, you know, this has a lot to do with, with the ecology between people and animals. Um, it also has to do with global transportation. That means a disease, a novel disease that breaks out in Wuhan can then travel very quickly um, through uh, uh, not just trains and cars, but airplanes now can travel very quickly. Um, this is just a kind of list of what have been major um, public health uh, concerns just in the past uh, uh, 20 years, starting with SARS, MERS, Ebola, Zika, and now COVID-19. So starting back with SARS, there was a, a growing sense among policy uh, uh, leaders that they needed to start planning ahead thinking about, well, if a novel pandemic breaks out, how are we going to control it, especially if it spreads very fast and, uh, and even scarier, it has a, a high mortality rate. And so people, agencies like the Centers for Disease Control, even the Department of Defense started spending money, believe it or not, to hire historians and other um, uh, archaeovirologists to get them together to investigate, in particular, the uh, pandemic that I'm going to talk to you um, uh, about today. Um, of all the, the old pandemics, I mean, people go back and look at the bubonic plague in, in, uh, in 14th century Europe. Uh, they look at the initial disease exchange with native peoples when the Europeans came with Columbus. But of all the lookbacks, the one on the influenza pandemic has probably gotten the most attention because in many ways it's the first modern global pandemic in the sense of what, what, uh, what we are um, experience, experiencing today. So one of the historians who got um, um, invited to participate in this look back was me. Now, I want to make clear here, I have been a bit player in this. There are other historians that have been much more at the forefront of organizing this. I would call out my colleagues at the University of Michigan, Howard Markell uh, and Alexandra Stern um, as leading this team, but they invited me in to help because of my uh, historical specialization in popular public health education. So that's my book. In some circles, I'm known as the germ lady. 
Um, uh, one reason I get calls from journalists is they will Google germs, and the Gospel of Germs comes, uh, comes right up. What was this book about? I wrote it a long time ago, 1998. Um, been been in print ever since. What I was interested in is how ordinary people like us came to believe in the existence of something they couldn't see, which was a germ, a microbe, uh, and then to alter the way they behaved, like you know, doing the, the not shaking hands, but the the kinds of stuff we're now doing. How did they uh, How did they learn to do that? And they were really very purposeful public health campaigns to teach people how to avoid giving each other germs um, and trading communicable diseases. And what I called the gospel of germs in this book is, um, in in many ways, the foundation of the kind of containment practices that we still. Um, use today? How do you minimize the sharing of microbes between human beings? Um, the fancy, see, I always like to give students something really, uh, a, a fancy phrase so you can sound really, you know, smart when you're talking to other people. Um, Non-pharmaceutical uh, interventions, NPIs, in public health circles, anything that doesn't involve giving you a vaccine or a drug is a non-pharmaceutical intervention. Um, so all the stuff I was looking at, and by the way, there are no antibiotics, there are relatively few vaccines in this time period. It, the way you kept from getting sick was by practicing these habits. Um, a, I think um, um, easier to say is the phrase social distancing measures. You go online or you read in the newspaper, and they are, they are talking about that all the time now. Um, when they tell us not to shake hands or to, you know, sneeze into your elbow, that's a social distancing method. Um, exactly the same stuff they were telling Americans to do at the turn of the last century. Why is this important? Because even though we have made uh, astounding um, uh, improvements in the health sciences, we still cannot cure a virus. Uh, limited uh, medications to this day to slow down uh, a viral um, infection. So when we are faced with a novel virus, um, using these tactics is one of the most important ways we have to keep people from getting sick and dying. Um, so if you have a highly contagious epidemic on your hands, your best bet is to try to slow its spread, stop its spread, and these techniques are very, very valuable. That was a lesson public health experts learned in World War I that we still use today. So uh, my work has been kind of studying, first I did just basic germ education, but then I look specifically at World War I and how they tried to ramp up the public health education uh, in the face of the pandemic. And that's what I'm going to show you more of um, today. Okay? So let me give you some quick overview of the 1918-1919 pandemic. It started in the fall of 1918. There were multiple outbreaks uh, in different parts of the world. It's still not clear which one was first. There's a lot of arguing uh, about that. It, uh, what we are sure of is it did not start in Spain. It is called the Span or it became nicknamed the Spanish flu, not because it started in Spain, but because 
Spain was a neutral, uh, not a combatant in World War I, and so their newspapers weren't being as careful about reporting on the early stages of the pandemic. They ran a story about it, and somehow they got, they got associated. Well, it's the Spanish flu. Um, it spread first among troops, and then it jumped into civilian uh, populations. Um, it was uh, uh, compared to the normal flu, and they understood there was an influenza just like we have that kind of comes every year at a certain point of time. This particular flu was much scarier. Why? It was very contagious, spread easily from person to person, and its death rate was higher than the usual flu. Also, the normal influenza usually kills fragile people that can be very young or very old, people who are already uh, have systems under stress. The Spanish flu was terrifying because it killed people your age. Um, it it um, did not concentrate just on the, the very young and the very old. And uh, in public health circles, they talk about the dreaded W shape. So let me show you what... That's the W. You can see the normal influenza pattern is a U-shaped, very young, very old. Look at the 1918. Big spike up. In fact, it changed the life expectancy in the United States because so many young people had their lives shortened dramatically uh, as a result of the influenza pandemic. Uh, this just gives you another... Um, this is from a public health report published after. Uh, you see the extraordinary spike in death rates due to this, uh, due to this pandemic. Um, well, what did public health experts know about influenza in 1918? Well, compared to the last kind of biggish influenza epidemic, which had been in the early 1890s, they had learned a lot. For one thing, um, they had convincing laboratory proof of uh, something you may have heard of as the germ theory of disease, the idea that uh, communicable diseases are caused by, by microbes, uh, bacteria, and viruses. There had been a lot, uh, a lot of work showing that, in fact, it wasn't some mysterious thing in the air that made you sick. It was this microorganism um, that, in the case of bacteria, they could see under a microscope and they could prove uh, cost of specific um, diseases. So they had made huge leaps forward in terms of understanding uh, what the, the, the nature of, um, of disease was. They were able with the current microscopes of the time to see bacteria. Um, they could not yet see, whoops, sorry, uh, they could not yet see a virus. The difference between a bacteria and virus, let me just show you this very quickly, um, a little contagion uh, 101. Uh, viruses are tiny compared to bacteria. Uh, the analogy is a, a virus is the size of a mouse and the bacteria the size of a person. Um, viruses are much more primitive, but they're more deadly in that they insert themselves into your cells and commandeer your machinery um, to, to uh, replicate. Uh, they mutate quickly, which is one reason they're still so difficult um, to, uh, to control. Um, even to this day, as I said before, we have limited uh, pharmaceutical treatments for viral diseases. We can slow some of them down, um, but we are, we are not able to cure the, uh, the flu. 
And today we rely on vaccines to, uh, to control things like influenza. Bacteria are much bigger, and um, they're a single-celled microorganism. It turns out that, um, uh, I mean, they, they are, can do incredible damage to the body, um, but eventually effective drug treatments were found for uh, bacteria, antibiotics, the only work against bacteria. They don't work against viruses. Um, uh, they're, they're easier to disrupt their uh, machinery. The big question, and uh, to go back to this, about what did they know in 1918, 1919, um, they had a suspicion then that there was an infected particle smaller than a bacteria, but they couldn't see it under the microscopes of the day. They did experiments that proved that it was there, uh, that um, I, I can in some wonkier moment go into how this figured how they figured it out, they didn't know whether influenza was caused by a bacteria or a virus. They had a lot of scientists um, who tried to get in there and figure out what what was the X germ causing the pandemic influenza. Um, They failed. The the candidates they came up with turned out not to be um, the real H1. Uh, in one. And just so you know, uh, not until electron microscopes were invented in the 1930s could you actually see a virus uh, under uh, a microscope. And it wasn't until the 1990s that our tools of extracting um, um, the uh, influenza uh, virus and replicating its DNA, um, that our tools were good enough that we could actually extract it and uh, uh, replicate its DNA. So we now know a lot more about it than they did back then. There's another whole cool story there about archaeovirology and how they went and got samples of people who died from the flu. It's really pretty creepy, uh, but interesting that I can tell you on um, another occasion. What do they know then in 1918, 1919? They know it's communicable. They are sure it is a germ disease. They just don't know. Is it, is it a bacteria or is it a virus? They'd love to know, but they don't find out. In the end, that doesn't make a whole lot of difference because the way you protect against a bacteria and the way you protect against the virus, they're basically the same. Um, and so the, the uh, social distancing uh, methods um, that as the pandemic spread, people were supposed to use to keep from catching it were essentially the same ones that were used for any upper respiratory infection uh, But by this time. They understood that influenza as an upper respiratory infection was spread through coughing, sneezing, spitting. Men spit a lot back in this day. I think that that's a habit, thankfully, we've kind of given up. But they spit a lot. Um, Also, uh, if you shared glasses or utensils, um, uh, sometimes that's called uh, fomite. That's a really weird word, fomite. It's, It's an object that carries, like if I have coronavirus and you touch my phone and you get, uh, this is a fomite that you can, uh, you should not be messing with other people's phones right now, but you know that. Uh, so uh, objects can, uh, virus can live temporarily on, on the surface, so it can be transmitted uh, that way, and just various kinds of casual contact. You know, you all are hearing now, don't, don't touch your face, don't 
touch your nose. They basically had figured that out, that um, stuff is getting on your hands and and uh, that could make you sick. Uh, try to, to uh, practice careful hygiene so you're not spreading uh, germs. And they already had this idea, not just about influenza, but about a lot of other diseases. Now, one of the things that they realized pretty soon, remember that W I showed you, um, is that this 1918 strain of influenza seemed much more deadly than the usual uh, annual uh, influenza. And uh, experts today are still arguing. They have reconstructed the, the virus that they got out of people who died from the Spanish flu. Um, and some of them look at this and say, there's nothing particularly scary about this. Uh, it just looks, looks like an ordinary flu. It wasn't the virus. It was the social context that this was wartime. People were malnourished. Remember 1917? You look at those trenches and you think, boy, you would, you would get a lot of yucky stuff being in that, in, in that trench. Um, that wartime uh, hygiene, nutrition may have made people more vulnerable. And perhaps that is why it's so, uh, it was so deadly. Um, that argument is ongoing. Um, I'm, as a historian and not a, a, a virologist, I don't know. My guess is they're never going to be able to firmly determine why it was that this particular virus uh, caused that, that uh, W shape. Yeah. Um, is there like a reason? Uh, could you? Uh, yeah. Um, is there like a specific reason why it was affecting people in like their 20s to 30s compared to the normal flu? We don't know. And, and that's kind of the the puzzle of this is uh, that's so unlike the normal flu. Now that age group we know would have been military. That that would have been the young men and the troops. Yes. So, um, but it also in the civilian population killed a lot of young people as well. Maybe the nutrition overall. I mean, even even though it was the home front, things were. Maybe people weren't fed as well, but I'm not sure they've really come up with a good answer yet for why it took that Y shape. And to be honest, the uncertainty about this one is something that carries over into other new ones is there's always this worry that it's going to happen again and we don't know exactly why. Uh, fortunately, does not appear in the coronavirus to be doing that W shape. So far, so good. Um, Whatever the cause, so again, we don't know, was it, was it a mutation that made it so bad or was it the underlying uh, wartime conditions? What we do know is that compared to the annual influenza, the 1918 uh, version was really, really scary in its uh, symptomology. Uh, people would come down with an extremely high fever. They would develop a really severe upper respiratory infection. Um, often compounded by uh, uh, nausea and um, diarrhea. Um, in the worst cases, it caused such a devastating, it was such a devastating assault on uh, the lungs that um, the lung tissue was, was destroyed and essentially uh, people were dying from the fact that they could not get enough oxygen into their lungs. Their lungs were that 
um, that damage. There was also a secondary uh, problem, and, and this is true with flu to this day, is that the virus weakens you and then a bacteria comes along. In the case of the influenza pandemic, it was pneumonia. Either viral or bacterial would come in, and if the flu hadn't killed you, the pneumonia um, would would um, would do it. Yeah, give it. Uh, can you hold on just a second? Were there any immu- like immunities to this virus? A very good question. So one thing about when you do have a virus, um, you may then have an immunity to it. One of the theories about why this was so bad is that, in fact, um, it had been almost 20, 20 years. The, the one I mentioned in the early 1890s may have been this strain, and that the people who had that immunity had either lost it or had died off. So it was basically uh, a virgin population that had not been exposed to this particular flu, and then that would make it, you you wouldn't have the immunity of having been exposed to it. Um, so that's one possible explanation to to why um, why a lot of people didn't have an immunity to this particular um, strain of it. Okay, so it's hard to uh, exaggerate um, how scary um, this epidemic became very, very quickly. And I'm just going to talk about the United States here, but it was, in fact, a global uh, pandemic. Um, the first two cities hit were Boston and Philadelphia. In part, they got hit first because they had military camps that uh, uh, jumped to the civilian population. They were caught unawares by the, uh, the speed and the, the, uh, the deadliness of the, of the pandemic. And by the time they started to put those distancing, quarantining, isolating measures into place, the epidemic was already out in the general population and very hard to, uh, to shut down. Um, in Boston, the kind of center of infection was Camp Devens. There were 14, uh, again, military uh, camp, 14,000 cases of the influenza, 757 deaths. In Philadelphia, it was the Navy Yards um, that became the kind of focal point for the the, uh, the, the spread. Um, so many people were dying in Philadelphia that they were having to take cold storage plants that uh, they used for other purposes and turn them into morgues. The death tolls of that original um, pandemic in those two cities were really staggering. Um, seeing what was happening in Boston and Philadelphia Everybody else could say, uh-oh, this, this looks really bad. We need to uh, start getting re- ready. Let me just read you. This is a description from September 1918 from uh, then United States Surgeon General Rupert Blue. The disease is characterized by a sudden onset. People are stricken on the streets or while at work. First, there is a chill, then fever with temperatures from 101 to 103, Headaches, backache, reddening and running of the eyes, pains and aches all over the body, and general prostration. People so attacked should go to their homes at once, get into bed without delay, and immediately call a physician. 
sounded like good advice, but very quickly there weren't enough doctors to go around to take care of all the people going home um, with, with this disease. Now, one of the differences between that 1893 uh, influence epidemic and this one was the degree to which newspapers had grown and carried this story so you could see in real time uh, what was happening and what was coming toward you. Uh, the pandemic occurred. Yes, yeah, Vito. Oh, oh, sorry. All right, so uh, did the, like, the virus mutate when it was like present during this time period, since you talked about how viruses usually right. mutate? So, again, I'm not a virologist, but my understanding is whatever mutating it had done, it had already done. Um, there, there's sort of some early outbreaks of flu that may have been the milder form that then turned into the more lethal form, but by the time it got to Boston and Philadelphia, it was the lethal kind. Um, so did that happen in, in that space of those months where it was going back and forth? Uh, there, uh, there, there's still a lot of speculation because it's, it, it, our, our methods are not that good. Yeah, Ariana. When it comes to them, you know, telling people to stay home and whatnot in the newspapers, how did they figure that would work with the military, and is that why the situation got so bad? Because if you're, like, in an army base or whatnot, you can't just... Yes. Um, so in terms of uh, the sort of go home and go to the doctor was when it got into the civilian side. And in terms of the timing, fall of 1918, I know I have some military historians in here. Uh, what's going on in the war in the fall of 1918? I'm looking at when's the war over? The war's basically almost over. The armistice is in November. So the troops are already, you know, being brought home, being brought home in troop ships with the sickness, then put into their barracks where they get sick, and then it jumps into the civilian population. Um, they certainly try in the military. I mean, military medicine really, um, uh, they, they understood the need to isolate, but it was so overwhelming that, I mean, very similar to the stories we hear, they didn't have enough uh, doctors and nurses, and then the doctors and nurses they did have got sick. So it was kind of uh, an overwhelming of, uh, of, of the available resources. So this is happening in Boston and Philly, and meanwhile, the stories are, you can see shortage of nurses and doctors developing. Uh, this is a newspaper outside Boston, Brookline, uh, Massachusetts. Um, these uh, headlines, it's um, even though, especially in the very early months, there was a lot of war news that tended to uh, get the you know the, the the top this stuff is definitely creeping in there uh, around that of oh you know here's this this pandemic there's an epidemic and it's really uh, it's looking very very scary um, in many ways this is the first mass mediated pandemic in in modern history because there were so many newspapers now uh, able to uh, cover these um, kinds of, of stories. So I want to uh, get us to think for a minute about what you did if you were not in Boston and Philadelphia. You could see this coming. What 
what would what tools could you put at your command to try to protect your people against this uh, this invading uh, epidemic? You had time to prepare. What what should you do? Well, here's where we come back to those non-pharmaceutical interventions that I talked about before. They had a very clear game plan. They knew what they should do. They needed to set up facilities so that people who were sick could be isolated and taken care of, didn't want them to die, uh, try to give them the best chance to live. But in the meantime, keep them away from the well people. So you need to spot them and you need to isolate them. Uh, as soon as possible. You can put them in uh, uh, a special hospital or you can try the isolation at home. Um, You can encourage or increasingly force healthy people to limit their activities so they stay at home as well. So you're preventing the spread by getting everyone to stay at home. You can force, encourage people to stay home by closing schools closing workplaces, closing places of entertainment, shut down the movie theaters. They had those by then. Shut down Broadway shows. Uh, then people can't go out because the, these public spaces are, are uh, closed. And then finally, you could get out there and try to give people a refresher course on the gospel of germs. Here's how you need to behave as a healthy person to minimize the spread of this potentially deadly. Uh, what of anything I just said here is not going on on March 10th, 2020? Anything? Yeah. <laughs> They're starting to close schools and move things online. Um, there's a lot of events that have been shutting down already. Yep. yep. Like- St. Patrick's Day parades are going to be yep. shutting down and whatnot. Yep. So. It's, it's um, basically we are watching all of this unfold. If you look at what Wuhan did and what Italy has now done is the extreme version of this. But we are starting to see in New York the, the, the beginnings of, you know, it's a spectrum of, of how much you – uh, you encourage people to isolate themselves, but we're definitely headed in the right direction. I can't tell, I, you know, it is so weird for me to get up every morning and feel like it's, it's deja vu all over again in the Yogi Berra, uh, homage to Yogi Berra. The, the uncanny similarities to the research I did on uh, not Boston and not Philadelphia as they were trying um, to figure out what, what to do. So basically, uh, like I said before, the playbook now is the same playbook that they were using um, during the, the, uh, the great influenza. And how well did it work? How did they go about trying to uh, um, get people you know, to cooperate with, with all these um, techniques? So here's where we get to the subject of our class. Because in fact, I, I use the term propaganda here. Uh, we, we might want to call it public information, public education. Doesn't sound quite so, so bad as propaganda. Uh, but essentially, part of the playbook in, in World War I uh, was to try to get propaganda out there to, um, to uh, tell people what they needed to do. 
um, and um, the techniques that were used by public health experts uh, were taken from from other um, other forms of messaging at this time period. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to show you some of the messaging um, and ask you to look at it through the eyes, the analyses that we've cultivated in this class of looking at different forms of, of advertising uh, and propaganda. Let me just step back a minute and ask you to think about what you remember. Um, in 1918, what kinds of outreach mechanisms do they have available in the United States? Think back to the Wu book that we we uh, we read how if you wanted to get the message out, um, how could you how could you do it? Thoughts? Yeah, Jordan. Um, I guess the big way is newspapers because yes. that was the yellow journalism time period. Yes. So getting people putting like the articles about oh the flu's spreading will get people's attention and scare people. Absolutely, bingo. No, newspapers are definitely, but there was another. Tact or another format that they started to use. What, what were you going to say, David? Same thing. Okay. Um, this is probably not one that would immediately come to mind, but that's why we're, we're talking about it. So, yes, Jordan, um, newspapers. Um, and newspapers at this time, um, they could be really snarky about political stuff, but basically in terms of conveying epidemic information, if the public health department said, please tell people X, they would tell people X. There wasn't a lot of backbiting uh, about, you know, you're not doing it right or, or whatever. Um, it, it, um, the newspapers are really an important way for public health departments to get out there and say, Here's the threat. You really need to um, to, to do something about it. Um, this is the uh, newspaper from Seattle, and you can see churches, schools, shops closed. Um, the one on the right is from Washington, D.C. It shows you uh, nurses making gauze masks to protect people uh, from the... Uh, from the infection. So yes, newspapers were a really important source of, of uh, messaging about pandemic preparedness. The other tactic they used, you're also familiar with, but you probably have never seen. Remember we looked at all those French posters and how the posters were used to advertise all kinds of products? Well, the public health people saw those posters and said, well, we can make posters too. We're going to make posters about infectious diseases and try to help people um, uh, learn how to guard against them. The big show in town in 1918 was not influenza. It was tuberculosis, also a respiratory, mostly respiratory lung infection, very different pattern of um, uh, much more of a chronic infection, hard to uh, spread from person to person, lasted a lot longer, killed a whole lot of people. But ironically, the ways that you prevent the spread of the tubercle bacillus are uh, essentially the same ways that you're going to prevent the spread of the influenza uh, germ. Uh, coughing, spitting, you know, all, all those things that I mentioned to you the anti-TB people had already said, you need to be very careful how you cough and sneeze because you don't want to get tuberculosis. They basically took that message and, and layered influenza. They just changed 
tuberculosis and put influenza in there and basically put out the same message. So now um, I'm going to show you a ray, uh, a, a sort of selection of um, influenza-related uh, messaging material. And we're kind of we're going to do what we've done with some of our other um, uh, ad and propaganda analyses. I'm going to show you a, a series of of texts and images, um, and where they came from. And as you look, I want you to think to yourself: What does this remind me of that we've already looked at? What are they borrowing from? Uh, but I also want you to think about the what's the story they're telling? Why? Uh, what values are they drawing on to try to get people to uh, act in a careful way about the influenza? So, what what's the kind of uh, big picture of do this because fill in the blank? So I'm going to show you these, and then I'm I'm going to see what uh, what what you what you come up with. All right. Okay, so one way to go about this was to put up um, these public notices in public places. Um, on the left is a, um, people took trolleys uh, back in the day in Cincinnati. This was, uh, they called it a, a car card um, that told people to keep their bedroom windows open uh, to prevent influenza, pneumonia, and tuberculosis. On the right is a, uh, a poster that was developed for use by the Chicago Department of Health, specifically to be used in theaters, um, that told people, gave them basic information about what they should do if they were uh, not feeling well and also what they should do just to uh, stay safe. Um, so this kind of, of very text-based, here it is, here's what you need to do, very common. Um, in this time period. I, you know, I was working on this over the weekend and I went into New York City and I was sitting on a relatively new subway car. And what do you think was scrolling? It was COVID-19, do this, this, and this, first in English, then in Spanish. And I'm thinking, it's like a digital car card, much more sophisticated. Um, but uh, the the the, the it, it's um, the, the basic concept still very very similar. Messaging at your place of work. So remember, navy yards, places where military, you know, supplies were being made, had been a real um, uh, uh, breeding uh, point. So you're going to put um, up signs saying, "Please be careful," um, because uh, we don't. Well, please be careful. Okay, so that's the workplace. And then you had posters. Um, posters that look at how different, we're no longer just the words. Remember how we looked at old ads that were nothing but words, and then all of a sudden they started to put pictures with them? They, they started to get that in public health, that maybe if you put a picture, uh, it was worth a thousand words. Um, so uh, the, the one on the left, well, they're both by... Uh, from anti-tuberculosis societies um, that, again, basically they're taking images that they already had for TB and just retrofitting them for uh, influenza. This is from Rensselaer County in New York City. It's where Troy, New York is, uh, a, uh, uh, telling people to be careful about spitting, coughing, and sneezing. And then this one, it's kind of hard 
to uh, tell, but can you see who, who are these people? Um, can you tell by the way they're dressed? They're not just a random group of individuals. It's not a very good reproduction. Yes? Is it military because yes. of like the hat It's shape? the hat, absolutely. And I apologize, it's just not a very good, but absolutely, those, I, again, you probably see them in the movies, they look, I don't know, like, like a little dome hat. Those are, are uh, soldiers that they're, they're showing you. And then they began to experiment with cartoons. Um, in the, uh, the golden age of newspapers, cartoons became very exciting. Some of you may have heard in your other classes that yellow journalism really was a term that came from a cartoon strip that be everybody became insanely wild about that was about the yellow kid. And I think Pulitzer had it, and then Hertz stole it from him, and then Pulitzer tried to steal it back. Um, anyway, uh, cartoons, people bought newspapers because they wanted to read the cartoons. So these public health folks start realizing, well, if we want to get people to pay attention, maybe we should, we should try more cartoon-like um, figures as well. Um, both of these are from the United States Public Health Service in uh, in 1918 all right okay so you've seen them now talk to me about what themes do you see in here how is how is pandemic preparedness being pitched um, to get people to cooperate yeah so i noticed on the second one at the very bottom it says spread of spanish influenza menaces, ooh, where'd it go? Oh, I'm sorry, the second one that was on that slide. This one? No, keep going. It was on that. Back this way? Or back the other way, sorry. Uh, it was on one of the posters. No, it's not those. Not that one. But it basically said Spanish influenza menaces um, the war production. I think it's this one. No, it's a different no, one. No, there's <laughs> another one. Okay, so bingo, you've got it. It's yeah. menacing the war production. Where is it? That one, ah, yeah. There it is. It's the last one. Yes. So it's definitely being linked to being uh, supportive of the war effort. That Does anybody remember the posters we looked at from World War II about the, the slacker? Do you remember that? When I was looking at this, I thought of that. Remember the guy who's in bed and has been drinking and is not going to work? That he's letting down, you know, the whole American people. Uh, same idea here is you need to be careful with your coughing and sneezing um, as part of the war effort. What else do you notice about the intended audience here? This is something that hit me like a... a especially in the pictures. Look at the pictures. Yes. I feel like it's targeting men. Yes. Specifically. Yes. Because every poster is about men. It's about um, soldiers and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. It's also being like, don't spread this to other people. So it's your actions, the actions that you're taking, mm -hmm. instead of like, ways to not get it, it's ways to not give it. Give it, yes. So I can't 
I don't know, I was maybe two-thirds through my research before I realized I had yet to see a drawing of a woman in any of this influenza pandemic stuff. All of the, yeah. Part of that been because women were typically in the home? Yes, I think that's part of it. And also when you think about even today, which of the two genders is thought to be more health conscious? Isn't it usually going to be uh, a woman compared to a man? I can also tell you, because I have done all this, that a lot of the health education was being focused on children and by their mothers and by their teachers. So there was a kind of association of hygiene education with women and girls. And the sense was that somehow the guys just hadn't gotten um, the message yet. Um, also, I, I think I mentioned the, the spitting habit. Um, spitting was associated with chewing tobacco, which is not something normally that women did uh, much of. Um, so men were seen as the source of the spitting problem uh, rather, than, rather than women. Um, so clearly targeting them. I think those are all good explanations that the men are more likely to be out and about uh, going to the Navy Yard, uh, whereas the women are back at home. Um, but there's also a suspicion that, you know, macho whatever, that they may not be as tuned into uh, the finer points of not spitting or coughing on people uh, than might be their grandma or their... Uh, or their, their mom. Okay, good, good. But you can see how much they were, they were drawing from other forms of advertising and, and propaganda from the same time period um, to get their message across. So, you know, compared to at least to previous uh, pandemics, this effort was pretty sophisticated and they really got this message out to a lot of different places very quickly. It's not, it's not easy to do. And remember, they had to print all the stuff up. They couldn't just go and post it on the internet. That said, it's one thing to get the information out there. It's another thing to get people to act on it. So I want to talk now a little bit about resistance. Remember when we talked about the Wu book? We talked about the resistance that people develop to all these messages, you know, the attention merchants are trying to get you to do X, Y, and Z. You hear it so much, you just turn off, or you listen and you think, I can't do that, or I don't want to do that. Very similar to these messages that these ideas that we're putting out there were difficult to implement. Um, then, as now, and here's where you really, whoops, see some of the similarities to what's happening to us today. Let's say they come to you tomorrow and say, we have to shut down Stony Brook. Uh, we have to um, shut down all the public schools in Suffolk County. We have to stop people from going to, uh, into Wall Street to run the stock exchange. How are people going to respond? Businesses don't want to close. 
they, um, they realize the economic harm that's going to be done through closures. Workers don't want to stay home. Why? Because they don't get paid. There is no sick pay in this time period. There's not sick pay. If I could tell you the number of conversations I've heard from people here talking about what are we going to do if we have to stay home and we don't get paid. Um, these were Many of these people lived from uh, paycheck to paycheck, being told you couldn't go to work. Um, you might get influenza, but you might starve if, if you weren't going to work and uh, getting the money. This one just keeps coming back to me because I read all these accounts of why, why it was a bad idea to close down public schools. And the argument was a lot of the parents of these kids work. So the kid is going to be either left alone or more likely they are going to start running around the streets of New York in this case. And they're much more likely to get the influenza running around than if we stick them in school and keep an eye on who's sneezing and also make them practice social distancing. So there was strong pushback, even in the face of the W curve, of people saying, we can't do this. We don't want to do this. We don't think it's a good idea. Um, you're, uh, we, we're, we can't get with the program. I don't care how many car cards or posters you put up. This is not making, making sense. And one of the arguments you see from uh, basically, I'd say the public health experts, they kind of span the spectrum of some saying, I don't care. I want you to stay home and, you know, I, I don't care. You got to do it. And then you have other public health experts who say, I get your point. I get your point. And some of them are saying the economic disruption from forcing everybody to stay home is a public health problem. So maybe we need to take a more moderate approach. And the other thing they talk about is morale. If you scare people and they have to stay home and they can't go to baseball games or the theater, their morale goes down, and even though they didn't understand the psychological part of the immune system, they definitely had a sense that uh, if people are depressed, that they might be more likely uh, to catch something. Um, so there were some, some strong voices, including in the public health community, saying, uh-uh, we don't want to do the extreme of shut down everything. We want to do something uh, more moderate. And a case in point is our own New York City. This is a really interesting story. You would think New York is uh, Boston, Philly, New York, you know, it's coming at you, that New York would have taken a very hard line and closed down. No. And a lot of this depends on who's in charge at the moment. The uh, commissioner of public of health then was a guy named Royal Copeland, um, and he basically listened to all these arguments and decided to take the more moderate route. So what he said was, is I'm not going to close schools. What I'm going to do is um, instead ask everyone to stagger their opening and closing times. And the theory here is then everybody wouldn't be on the subway or the, the trolley car at the same time. He decided, no, we're not going to shut down uh, uh, Broadway and the movie theaters because that would make New Yorkers too uh, too depressed. Um, and we are going to keep kids in school and keep an eye on them. He was the one who said, I don't want 
hundreds of thousands of public school kids running amok in the streets of New York City. That, talk about a public health crisis. Um, so he really kind of took this more moderate view of, of uh, yes, making making accommodations, um, but not going toward the um, total isolation. Um, And one of the, uh, to me, one of the really interesting things about what ends up happening is that the uh, one of the deals that they made, and, and one of the fun things I did in my research project was I read Variety. Have you ever heard of it? It's a professional uh, entertainment newspaper, and it was very big even then. I sat and I read Variety from the beginning of the influenza to the end of what the theater owners were saying about about the the epidemic. And basically, the deal they struck with, with Copeland is they would stay open, but they all did kind of mandatory public health education. So you would come to the movie and some, I'd show you this again. This was actually a poster designed for a, a theater. They, you would sit there, it would be like at the beginning, you know, when they show you all the ads now. Instead, they would give you a little, okay, here's the influenza, be careful when you sneeze, uh, et cetera. They would turn it into a little mini public health lesson. And then you got to see your movie or your play or whatever it is. So there's a lot of um, uh, messaging that gets out there that I, I, I think a lot of it was intended to just calm people down and say, yes, we are doing something. We're, we're teaching you to be careful with your, your sneezes. We're not just sitting back and doing nothing, but then also letting people you know, go about their daily lives, if not entirely normal, quasi-normal. Now, one of the, the uh, most famous uh, uh, symbols of the influenza was the, the wearing of the gauze mask. I had many more pictures in here, but I took them out for purposes of time. You can find everybody and their uncle wearing a gauze mask uh, in this time period. I had one with a baseball player uh, that I'll be sure to show Sam when he's uh, back back in class. Um, Lots of gauze masks as a kind of symbol. I'm being very careful. You see them today all around campus, people wearing masks as a way to show, I'm trying to protect you and protect me. But in fact, when I looked at the, the, the sort of big picture, to me what was more striking about what people were being told to do, and especially the men, was not to use a mask, but to use a handkerchief, a cloth handkerchief. As it turns out, face masks were really hard to wear. The ones they had were hot and sticky. All those pictures, there's one famous one, I think it was San Francisco of some march where they had the public health commissioner, and he'd taken his off and it was dangling on his ear, you know, from his ear, because have you ever worn a mask like when you do work around the house? I hate them. My glasses steam up. They're nasty. People didn't like wearing them. So a substitute was to tell you to use a handkerchief. Uh, For a certain generation of American men, and I don't know if European men, some of you who who may have grandpas who grew up in a different country, for my generation, you knew an older American because the man always had a handkerchief. And I, I see that as a kind of remnant of this, to be a good patriot, you've got to have your hanky and uh, 
and cover your nose. This is just a little, you know, a cartoon from a magazine where the little boy is so excited because he's he's gotten a handkerchief for his birthday. I, you know, I think that's probably overstated how excited the kid was to get the hanky. Would a handkerchief really, like, stop the spread of germs when you blow your nose, whatever? You've now just touched that, whatever you touch. Um, I think it's more good for, uh, you know, in terms of real infection control, no. Uh, But in terms of maybe making you more aware of protecting other people, um, did it do absolutely no good at all? Maybe it did some good. Uh, But again, if you're wearing, those masks were very porous, so they were likely not keeping the influenza. The other big winners I can see, and this is where I, I, I disagree with uh, Crosby says, oh, the flu, it had no impact on the way Americans lived. Oh, contraire. Um, the, the rise of tissues, facial tissues, Kleenex, as um, we, we know them, big thing in the 1920s. It was originally introduced for women to take their makeup off, but they found people were using it to blow their noses. And so they decided, okay, we're going to market it as a, a paper handkerchief. So if you didn't have the linen one, and also uh, to use it once and then, you, and then you get rid of it, which seems more, more cleanly. David, you were going to... I've seen the picture of the police. Would they use yes. to enforce any form of like maintaining like uh, public health? Yes. Um, so the... Um, Laws had been on the books since the 1890s that in many cities that you couldn't spit in public, uh, but they were never enforced. During the influenza pandemic, they do start enforcing uh, the the anti-spitting laws. That particular picture, I think, here is really, uh, there were a lot of staged ones where, uh, you know, basically you take a picture of them all wearing their masks, um, five minutes later, I think all those masks probably came off as they went, uh, went about their business because they, they were just too hard to, uh, to use. Uh, but people did, uh, I'm not saying nobody wore them, and in fact it became like a symbol of being a really sophisticated person as you would wear the mask. But I think for the majority of American men, the hanky was a much more viable, easy to get. You can, you can launder it. That was the thing. You were supposed to have enough of them that then you would wash them so uh, you could use them um, the, the next time. All right. So did any of this work? Well, you, you may be surprised to find out that when historians have gone back and tried to correlate these social distancing measures with the death rates in American cities, that they found that cities that opted either for the moderate or the total close down did seem able to control their death rates. So these techniques, I mean, you can't 100% show it, but correlation, remember we talked about the importance of correlation. Um, cities that implemented, for example, even the, the stuff that Royal Copeland did in New York City. New York City, people did indeed die, and we were hearing some stories from, from our, our, our guests here today about people and their families um, that, that, uh, that did die, but compared to Philly and Boston, 
um, the death rates were were they were able to to um, to pull it down to mitigate if not to contain um, the spread of the uh, of the the influenza um, you will you will not find a historian who's looked at the gauze mass who will say that that really helped um, because too porous people didn't wear them um, but again I think the use was more symbolic than than it was you know it made people feel better after reading about all this stuff I think making people feel safe is as not a bad thing to do especially if it's wearing a gauze mask or mask makes you feel better wear the mask as long as you don't take it away from a nurse or a doctor who needs it um, you know if you can you cannot take away a scarce resource but if if it makes you feel safer if it helps ratchet down your anxiety I was just reading something that uh, indicated you know stress uh, makes you more vulnerable to infection yeah um, that you know trying to come up with anti-stress measures um, is, um, is is an important um, goal so even if they aren't like a hundred percent scientifically proven they're not hurting anyone why not why not um, do it okay I, I asked you all to think about uh, some questions about what you think is going on now can we do a little compare and contrast of what uh, what similarities you see between now, but also what differences? As history majors, we look at change over time. Anybody feel feel like making a comment? What do you, or let me reframe it, maybe a more answerable question. What do you see as, as the challenges that we're facing right now? What, what, from what you're hearing, what do you see as kind of where we may be having trouble? I think the economic implications of a total shutdown of a college or even, mm -hmm. you know, if you look at Italy, an entire yeah. shutdown and, mm -hmm. and everyone has to stay at home and things. Mm -hmm. When it comes to businesses, the stock market is plummeting. Like, yes. economically, I don't know how this doesn't put mm -hmm. us into a recession because of this or mm -hmm. something like mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I completely agree. The degree of inter dependence and globalization I mean the it was a global pandemic in it but it was with ships and trains and you you when I said it came at you it came at you a lot slower now it's on a plane and it can be here in 12 hours um, so the pace is clearly much speeded up the economic consequences are probably worse now I mean one of the things there, in fact, uh, the American history people know that 1919, there was a tremendous economic meltdown. Um, how much of that was the fault of the flu and how much of it was the, the fault of the war? It's probably more the war than the flu. Um, but it, it, was, it was really bad. So economic disruption, I think, is, it does seem more extreme this time around. Yeah. Since you're living in a time where everything is so interconnected globally, Mm -hmm. um, we're like, even if this did start, you know, in Asia or it's, it's hitting Europe more than here, maybe because of how we all are so interconnected yeah. with the economy, with the stock markets and mm -hmm. things like that, mm -hmm. there's no way that it doesn't impact the entire world. Yeah. yeah. And I think we now understand that in a way that at this time period, I mean, they knew about the, that the bubonic plague had been really bad and had messed up 
Europe, Europe's economy. But that was a long time ago. This kind of, uh, you know, the recency of it to really see what, what the economic toll can be. What would you say about the media piece of it? Tommy, yeah? <laughs> the media has, they've gone out of control with it. I feel like back then they didn't have as much media spreading it like every second of the day. So remember we had that conversation about well, looking in the Woo book and about the third screen and how it's set off this kind of competitive. Um, the competition is so extreme and it's like someone sneezes in Southampton and we hear about it, you know, in, in New York City. I think the degree of... So the 1918, that was a more mediated epidemic than before. But compared to now, 24-7, and also the social media. You know, we could get on there and post, um, you know, an Instagram or whatever about, and, and in fact, people are doing that. I just saw one from one of the SUNY people that, I think got sent to Binghamton from the study abroad, and she was she posted a little video about it. They couldn't do that uh, back then, so much more opportunity to get a lot of different messages out there that aren't necessarily going to agree. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also so important that like messages from people in like an authoritative position yes. actually get out. You know, yeah. quickly messages because you have our situation where there's so many rumors on social media yes. and no one yeah. knows what the actual truth is, mm-hmm. and yet we're not hearing anything from an administrative mm-hmm. level. Mm-hmm. So more rumors are just going to keep happening because yes. social media is so instantaneous. Yes, yes, and and uh, believe me, it's not that they're not trying, uh, but the complexity of getting messages signed off at multiple levels um, and. Speaking in one voice, that is not something that's happening. Um, You know, you're getting different experts saying different things. I just keep track of sometimes they say it's not as bad. Sometimes they say it's mutating. Um, There's there's a lot of confusion um, and and mixed messaging. Who, who, Who are you supposed to? It's become politicized, unfortunately. So, you know, it's used as an opportunity across the world. For, for different groups who don't like each other to bash each other. So not uh, it, it's, it's a challenge. Um, so we'll, we'll try to get, you know, on the same playbook. Don't worry about what's going to happen. We're going to be fine. We're, we're going to um, – we'll know more by Thursday. All right? Thank you very much. You were really good. Um, even- Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.